0: Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles.
1: While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a
2: few minutes. I'm Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. This week, Alex chatted with Mary Folston, curator and creative director of many gaming installations over the years. They talk about some of her favorite projects, her work with institutions like the Victoria and Albert Museum, and what she's up to now.
1: This is uh, another really cool interview. It's interesting to hear what other people who are doing similar things uh, as The Maid is do what they do and talk about how they do it. Uh her installations about like some really unique early controllers, or seem like a blast to play, and I'd love to, I'd love to get my hands on them. Ha 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 ha! Sorry, I'll I'll keep that to a minimum. But it's it's a very informative and interesting interview, and I'm glad there are lots of other people out there trying to preserve this amazing history of games that we all love so much but before we get into that interview i think it's time for some news from software is making a new armored core game i am not too familiar on this little piece of information miles you want to so,
2: elaborate before uh, before from software started making demon souls and souls likes uh, they were big into mech games so God what was what was the funniest one it was like Steel Wolf or something uh you played as the president of the United States um <laughs> it was incredibly over the top it was frankly just bizarre but it was so funny so stupid um but Armored Core is probably uh, a bit better uh of their uh mech games it's much more sci-fi and i just i don't know they're fun i like mechs they're cool the big robots <laughs>
1: mechs are super fun and i i want there to be a lot more uh we had an interactive uh steel battalion cabinet that a uh-huh. fan of the museum made and we had that up and running for a while it was a hard game to get into but man once you get it it's it's a really really fun way to play i mean the way he set it up is like you have an old flight seat and you're just in an actual cockpit controlling and having the screens around you watching out the view screen. It's... Mech games are fun. Mm-hmm. We need more of them. Developers get to it. <laughs>
2: so it's not announced yet, but uh, there have been a couple uh, leaks uh, about work that From Software is doing on the sixth Armored Core game. So, it's been a... Mm. They've taken a bit of a break from the franchise, and now they're potentially coming back to it, which is exciting to see.
1: Yes, it is good. It is a good thing to see, to have them branch out and not just focus on the Souls games. Although, maybe they should finish Elden Ring games. first. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, clearly. But, you know, they can do other things. I mean, Elden Ring seems to be, like, really cool. I mean... <laughs> I don't know. It they they were really touting uh George R. 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 Martin as like one of the writers initially and then it kinda just like stopped mentioning that. So I'm a little bit worried of like like they stopped mentioning that right around the time the final season of Game of Thrones came out. They were just like, yes, yes, George R. R. Martin.
2: I don't think that's his fault.
1: <laughs> no, it's not his fault. It's HBO's fault for doing all that. Speaking uh, of
2: HBO. Oh. Uh oh yes tangentially related you'll figure it out when i get there the fallout tv show that's being made on amazon is going into production this year so it's going to start filming <laughs> um and that's it has exciting. a director now it's going to be directed by christopher nolan who was a writer and producer on hbo's westworld which was a very good it's, sci-fi television show
1: christopher nolan jonathan nolan, jonathan nolan. jesus
2: okay i was okay okay i was like what? i mean,
1: need to take that again yeah Okay, no, Jonathan Nolan. Okay. Jonathan Nolan. In, but, I mean, so that's still, I think, very fitting, very fitting. He's familiar mm-hmm. with that type of a world, but, oh, um, okay. I was yeah, like, so, Chris Nolan's doing Fallout? Oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, the writers of uh, Westworld from HBO, are uh, tagged to work on the new Fallout game. Fallout television show that's on amazon that so i'm, I'm i have faith in them. To it
1: as long as yeah. yes I, I wonder if they're going to make a joke character out of preston garvey uh and then just have him show up at the end of every episode and then be just like hey there's another settlement that needs your help <laughs> <laughs> uh yes i mean the, we're, we're all excited about the fallout show and we'll see what goes on uh there's a few other new announcements uh ps5 has announced a tournament feature which will be released this year so there's still not a lot of information it was just announced at ces uh there's going to be i mean there's potential for hosting tournaments on your home ps5s which could potentially put them in the forefront of online gaming and competitive gaming on their console so that's pretty exciting Uh, gdq is happening right now this week uh until the 16th of january uh supporting the prevent cancer foundation uh give that a check out if you can if you're so inclined uh watch a lot of people beat a lot of games really fast it's really cool and for charity Mm uh it's very good and then uh final little bit of info monster hunter rise is out on pc With mixed reactions, they didn't really do a ton of improvements visually or performance-wise to the game on PC, but we will see what goes on. Uh, Still a great game, still super fun, but we'll see what happens in the future. But for now, I think it's time we throw it over to Alex and Mary
3: Fulston. Here's the interview. And we are here with Marie Fulston. Marie, (laughs) Thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me. Or say being here, I'm sort of in my kitchen at home. So I guess, well, thanks for being here and being on the computer in my kitchen at home.
3: Yes. And despite the thousands of miles between us, uh, you're you're in the UK. And why don't you tell our listeners Mm -hmm. uh, who you are and what you do and how you got into it?
4: So my name is Marie Falston, and I call myself a sort of playful curator. Um, And I guess my background and the work that I do is around about sort of ways in which we can bring video games and sort of digital playful projects and work into public spaces. Um, And that started off predominantly with my work as part of the UK collective called The World Rumpus, which was sort of, was and still kind of is, a ragtag group of um, folks who were really interested in work that was developing in the independent game scene and alternative game scene, like mostly in the early 2010s, sort of mid-2010s. and we used to throw sort of video game parties and um, do some sort of exhibitions and installations showcasing that work. And it wasn't at that time that I really thought of myself as being a curator, but on reflection and during that work or through doing that work, that was something that I began to realize that it was right to sort of value that work in that way. And as with... I guess sort of that famous cliche that if you want to be something, just call yourself it. And so (laughs) I started calling myself a curator and that's when museums that are places with proper curators in them with a capital C said, oh, okay, then well, why don't you come and do some work with us? So um, yeah, and so that then led, that sort of work then led to uh, my role at the Victorian Albert Museum in London working as their curator of video games, um, which was predominantly being the lead curator on their big video games exhibition from a few years back. Um, But I've also done work with um organizations such as now play this which i was guest director for which is an experimental video game festival in the uk and yeah and i've done a range of installations and projects with a host of different institutions both big and small internationally
3: so uh, let's talk about some of those installations can you highlight some of your favorites over the years uh, like what are some of the, uh, i don't know whether we'd say games or performance pieces or uh, what are some of these things
4: yeah, Oh, good question because, you know what, my mind instantly goes towards sort of the work I did at the V&A and I guess that's because that's some of the most recent. Maybe if I take one from each, um, I'm trying to think back to Wild Rumpus in the days that we did um, that work that I think, yeah, with, one of, with Wild Rumpus, one of my favorite works that we showed, and I think it's one of the sort of quintessential games that we were sort of exhibiting from that period, is a game called uh, Ruffle Pillar um i don't know if you alex okay you're familiar with it but i think i probably need to do a little bit of a pause and explanation for people who are listening i imagine a lot of people know what Pillar is so it was a game that was created by a group of designers and developers in scotland who were based in scotland at that time called lucky frame and they were really interested in the old game track controllers which i think were originally from a game that um was a golf game and so they probably giving way too much background and exposition that's fine that's what this is for
3: this is for that background and i
4: could even tell you about the history of how that controller was invented which was the guy that invented the game track controller was in a hotel room and he really liked the uh feeling of pulling the um, sort of drying, the sort of clothesline, retractable clothesline that was in his hotel room in and out. And he thought, oh, this is actually a really interesting way of tracking sort of movement within a sort of, is it not safe four-dimensional space? That's not quite right. Three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So before we have sort of like um, the sort of Xbox and Nintendo um that are able to do sort of uh, motion tracking. We have sort of this very sort of, I guess, kind of analog version where it's a retractable string that comes out of a ball socket that moves mm-hmm. around in space. Anyway, that's the background mm-hmm. of the game track controller. But so they were making a range of games and work that was sort of using this controller. And Rockefeller then was sort of this, I don't even know where they got the idea from it from because it's so ludicrous, but essentially it's a game where two people, lie on their backs, and put their heads into this sort of makeshift Wendy house. And on the roof of that Wendy house is a TV screen or a screen, and that shows the game, which is a game in which you are a caterpillar, hence the name Rufflepillar, and you are moving around a space trying to eat apples. Um, And the way that you as the player control your uh, caterpillar within that space is by rolling around in a rainbow, um, sort of a rainbow sleeping bag, that um so you're lying on your back on the floor with your head in a little Wendy house, and attached to that sleeping bag is the string from the game track controller, which obviously then tracks your space and so for me as a project it's one which I think for me as a work like I really enjoy people who mine I guess older technologies and existing technologies that I don't think we' fully explored all of the potential or the creative sort of things that we can do with that work. And so I really love the fact that that was born out of sort of Lucky Frames' desire to just really iterate and work with this sort of older, um, older gaming peripheral. But also for me, it's a work which really shows like how, There is a value not just in being the person playing that game, but in spectating that game and sort of, okay, this is a game that really needs to be in a public space and being watched by people to really sort of be valued. And and the way in which as well that when people are playing games in public spaces, like things like traditional controllers can be really... um, intimidating because there's a whole language established around that controller and what you're supposed to do with it, where if you've got a game that's controlled by sticking your head into a Wendy house and rolling around in a sleeping bag, I don't think there's many people that are going to go into that space and know instinctively how that controller works. So it's like, okay, kind of leveling the playing field here a little bit. So, um, and it's also just sort of the kind of thing that you want to sort of try out and you want to play. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's... I've probably talked a lot about Rufflepillar, so that, I think, is one of my favorite projects from when we were doing World this.
3: Well, that, that's a great game to talk about. I mean, I cannot think of any other game in the history of the universe where a sleeping bag is the medium <laughs> in which you play. I mean, yes, the yeah. gimbal is is the device that's communicating that, but really, the interface medium is the sleeping bag. Like, you've taken yeah. away the controller, and it is... a. a a bag of fabric that you climb into like that yep. is that's beyond even nintendo's sort of let's rethink the controller scheme kind of stuff they always
4: do <laughs> like yeah nintendo you got as far and i guess in terms of fabric they got as far as like the knitting machine didn't they and was there something else oh, they did they so, did a knitting yeah they did a i guess, guess that's not so much the controller shit. yeah, yeah <laughs> but like where were your sleeping bags nintendo come on <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah and those were more for you know actual fabrication you couldn't like stick your hand in the uh, knitting machine that would be bad
4: Oh yeah, that would be bad. Although this is now reminded me of the, um, I got, I don't remember the name of the project or the name of the developers, which is an awful thing to sort of bring up, but the, um, designers who made the game that runs on a sewing machine, like an embroidering machine.
3: Yes, yes, you know yes, yes. I can't called? remember yeah. the names either, but now they've outdone Nintendo, right? Like in terms of these controlling <laughs> things, I think you've hit on a really cool thing about public display of games. Yeah the really cool and interesting interfaces are even better when there's a crowd of people watching, especially like, you know, I, I don't know that this game exists, but like, if there was a giant version of Quop or something, I mean, in your oh, installation, there's you had- a
4: giant Q-op. version of Co-op. There's Mega Quop, which was by um, which was developed by Doug Wilson, sort of iterating on Bennett Forty's game co-op and um, that was, I think, born from the fact that Doug, as a designer, is somebody who also is really into DDR, and so Mega Quop is a game where they essentially, like Doug, just brought up, I think, all of these. Um, sort of dance mats that were distributed with different DDR games mm-hmm. and stitch them all together and turn them into a giant keyboard. So instead of you having to sort of acrobat or like do sort of like twister with your fingers, you're doing it with your actual fit, like your whole body, which then gave birth to, um, there was Cater's Kata, um, game Alphabet as well, which um, which was tied up to or that we plugged into sort of a big keyboard controller. So yeah. Mega cool. Well,
3: that's that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's uh it, the controllers were displayed, I know, at GDC every year, and you guys did the wild and mild rumpuses at GDC for a few years.
4: Yeah, too. yeah, That was um like we used to yeah, we used to do the big a big sort of party at GDC every year. Um and then we also um inverted the uh or turned the W from wild rumpus upside down to make it the mild rumpus, which was the complete not the complete opposite of wild rumpus, but a desire to be sort of what's the thing that you really want when you're in a com- like in a convention centre? It's like, hey, here's a space where you can just sit down and stare at a screen for a bit and just switch your head off for a tiny like moment or charge your phone and have a nap. It's fine and look at these sort of calming games.
3: Yeah, it was very nice. Uh, so uh, tell us about the v exhibit.
4: Yeah, so so like I went from this sort of one end of the spectrum where. We were. I was running events with friends. We were doing it on sort of a shoestring budget, holding things together with sort of gaffer tape and crossed fingers and like unlimited bags full of um, USB dongles. And yeah. then you go to the entire other end of the spectrum to working within a, a large established cultural institution like the V&A, like one of the biggest sort of museums in the UK and probably internationally as well, and suddenly working within... A historically established institution with so many sort of um, processes and regulations and ways of sort of ensuring like the integrity of the work that you're um, developing and obviously working with a much bigger budget as well. Um, and so that work was kind of not the exact opposite of what I was doing with Wild Rumpus, but whereas with Wild Rumpus, like a lot of our curatorial focus was around works, which we knew would work well within public spaces when you're undertaking an exhibition um, for an institution like the v and the scope of that exhibition, we couldn't just limit ourselves to just looking at games that worked well in public places in terms of being played. It was like, okay, well, what about a range of games which um, – and a whole range of works which aren't intended to work in these spaces, which actually wouldn't work well in public areas. So, yeah, so it was this huge sort of um, – huge learning curve for myself but an amazing opportunity um, yeah, and I can obviously talk about sort of the, the scope and focus of the exhibition as well and the thesis.
3: Yeah, I think that that would be helpful. I'm not sure everybody here got the chance to see it.
4: Yeah, so sort the, of the thesis of the exhibition was one which, um, and to sort of put the background to it as well, that the exhibition was called Video Games Design Play Disrupt, and it was very much not the first major exhibition about video games in a large cultural institution, that there's the history of the Game On exhibition from the Barbican, Game Masters from Acme, the art of the video game from the Smithsonian. And so there's this whole sort of um, legacy and history of exhibitions which had really pioneered about bringing video games into large cultural institutions. And what we wanted to do with this exhibition was to really um, not copy that work but to build upon it. And I think for me one of the key things that I wanted to really – push for the exhibition and the the V&A did as well was firstly was to um, establish an exhibition that was not looking back as a historical retrospective and I think up until that point that's sort of the way that a lot of video game exhibitions felt that they had to do it's like okay well we're introducing this to an audience within these spaces so we've kind of got to tell the whole history of the medium from here to here and here's the modern day but We know that there's, and as I'm sure many people do, that there's so many more detailed and nuanced stories about video games that can be told through the present day. So the focus for the exhibition was very much on, at the time, um, and I guess for a little bit longer, sort of contemporary games. And this specific thesis was sort of saying, okay, In the mid-2000s, there was this whole host of sort of technological catalysts from smartphones, broadband, social media that sort of had this radical impact on the way that games are designed, the way that they were sort of um, distributed, and the way that people play them. And so every game that we featured within that exhibition was a work which we felt was almost sort of disrupting and pushing back against a lot of our expectations about what video games are and what they can be. And it was an exhibition that was also, um, the other way that it sort of was seeking to sort of define itself, I guess, against a lot of exhibitions that have gone previously was that As I sort of mentioned, like a lot of the games that we exhibited are games which you know perhaps aren't going to work so well in an exhibition context. So take a game like Bloodborne, which was one of the titles that we showed in that exhibition. It's just sort of, okay, that will work for some people, but this is a game that's sort of going to take sort of upwards of 60 hours maybe for sort of anyone player to really understand it as a design object. And you probably need to be in a certain space and in a certain context to play that game. And equally, if you're somebody who's not familiar with games or even if you are, this is a brutally difficult game. So how how would us exhibiting that game in a playable format in, a, in an exhibition actually help you as a visitor to understand that work? And so another key part of the exhibition was that, yes, there were interactive games and things that you could play with throughout the exhibition, but the majority of work that was on display actually wasn't things that you could interact with. It was very much sort of a challenge that we had about how do we take video games and have a way of displaying them and develop ways of displaying them that communicate something that we as curators really want to convey to an audience. Um, And how do you do that sometimes if interaction and direct sort of play is not necessarily the best way of doing that? Um, Yeah. And I think that sort of work kind of brings me to where, My sort of practice and my thinking is at the moment, which is really um, that I am really interested in sort of that challenge of, well, how do you display those games and how do you find a way of translating those stories? And I think for me, it's a critical part of that work. And I think it spans through all of this is understanding that um, for me, sort of exhibiting video games and the way that we need to think about that work is to think about video games through the lens of performance Um, And that could be that, yes, we want to enable the performance in a public space, but maybe we also want to convey and communicate a specific performance to you rather than have you participate in that. Um, Yeah. And so that's kind of where my work is today is thinking about weird and different ways to exhibit games that sometimes might be playing them, but um, sometimes might not as well.
3: Yeah, I think it's all about the context of what you're trying to communicate. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So speaking of which, what are you working on now?
4: Um, So I say I'm working on a project which isn't publicly announced, which is um, for me sort of a development of my practice um, as sort of an independent curator and working sort of in that more sort of DIY capacity and trying to build on the best parts of that, you know, the best parts of the work that we could do within that space. And also that rigor and practice that you have within sort of larger institutions of finding a way, okay, well, what is the middle ground here? How do we pull the best parts of um, both of these spaces? Um, But for me also thinking like, I don't think yet that we have fully worked out the best way of creating cultural spaces that allow us to explore and engage with digital works, especially digital works that sort of reveal, that are interactive that reveal themselves over a period of time. And so um, yeah, and, and for me that sort of – that works led me to a place of thinking about how um, how we can create sort of this hybrid sort of performance-based concept for exhibiting um, games and specifically with the work I'm doing at the moment looking at sort of virtual worlds and understanding virtual worlds through this sort of lens of thinking of them as being sort of sites of heritage as well. Hmm. So that's one project, and I guess if there's an example or something that connects to that that's more tangible and less sort of, like, confusing as I've probably outlined it, that a lot of this work for me was really inspired by um, sort of projects that we undertook at the Now Play This Festival back in 2020, which um, was, as with a lot of festivals, one which we had to transition from being an in-person festival to being online. Mm. And we really wanted to create experiences as part of that. We were really sort of created this sort of embodied experience of um, being with other people um, in, in sort of a physical space. And so as part of that, um, we undertook a series of guided tours around different locations. So one was Robert Yang, took people through the Black Mesa Research Facility in a multiplayer version of, um, of Half-Life. And we had Gareth Damien-Martin take uh, people through No Man's Sky to undertake a virtual uh, sort of um, landscape photography workshop and it was just really so a lot of the work is really building on what happens when you treat games in that way when you allow people to embody those spaces um with that sort of mindset um so that's one side of the work that i'm on but um something that i can talk about a bit more publicly is a short film called the grannies which was also a project that came out i've now played this last year which is a um, short experimental documentary that tells the story of a group of players who broke out of bounds from the video game Red uh, Red Dead Online. And it's a short film that sort of talks about their experiences with sort of what it means to explore beyond the spaces within a video game that you're supposed to inhabit. And what happens, what do you find beyond those boundaries? But How does that also help convey and communicate something about the materiality and the fabric and the humanity of video games and virtual worlds? Um, So that film at the moment is screening at a few festivals internationally. So it's just been premiered at the International Documentary Festival in Amsterdam. And it's just been announced that it's going to be part of London Short Film Festival in January, and we hope that it will be part of a few other festivals internationally, although several programs haven't been announced yet, so we can't talk about that. But yeah,
3: Oh, lovely. That's wonderful. We'll definitely have to make sure we catch that. That's interesting, the, the exploring the outside of the boundaries. I mean, how far it's come from the world beyond walls of the Castlevania Symphony of the Night crew.
4: Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, anybody, anybody that sort of transgresses what you're supposed to do in spaces, in video games, like the old sort of, um, oh, God, what was the old game show that used to, the talk show that used to take place in Halo? Was it Red versus Blue?
3: Or, oh yeah, red versus blue, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And sort of projects such as that where it's just like I mean, maybe there was this sort of someone was saying on Twitter the other day, like, is there some sort of renaissance happening or revival happening within machinima? And they might be right actually. When you look at the programming for a lot of film festivals now, there's a lot of work within video games happening there, really? which is really fantastic to see. Interesting,
3: yeah. yeah the machinima is a word I haven't heard in a few years. <laughs> Well, Marie, thank you so much for being here. It is lovely to talk to you and we hope we can uh, finally get you over here to the US to show you all the stuff on the West Coast.
4: I would love to. Thanks very much for having me.
3: Thank you for being here and uh, take care.
4: Handleback!
1: (laughs) Okay. So, thank you once again, Marie, for chatting with Alex and joining us on our podcast. Uh, We hope to hear more about any projects in the future potentially maybe a collaboration if things open up and we have a space again so that'll be very nice to see again uh i would also like to make a question to you guys what have you been playing before we end this
0: episode anything fun anything new um, i picked up celeste oh yeah Ooh. over the weeks I felt like playing sort of a retro um, platformer. It's really fun. Um, I like the mechanics. they present them they present them to you in a, in a sort of linear uh, fashion um, in order of difficulty. so they'll you know present one you know mechanic here like oh, you can go through this and this does this to you and then you know they just kind of get really creative with it. And really force you to think of your series of events reminds me of uh, sort of those hardcore platformers like uh boshi what um, are some of those other like mm-hmm. sort of seemingly impossible but it it's not too hard it's 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 a little easy mm-hmm. um, but I, I do believe there's like a sort of end game where they do up the difficulty on on those really hard mm-hmm. sort of platformer but I'm I'm enjoying it. That's good.
2: I've been looking at Celeste, and I've been terrified of getting started with it because of how difficult I've heard the platforming is. Like, (laughs) maybe I'm just Uh, a wimp and not good at gaming, but (laughs) it's... It's It's okay. Uh, I have never touched (laughs) it, but...
1: uh, Everyone at the museum is a big fan of it, and they highly recommend it. One for the story, for the visual, like just the art design and the story, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's also Mm -hmm. just a really fun game from what they hear. Difficult, yes, but you can also make it, you don't need to be the the perfect gamer and play everything on the hardest difficulty. You can just play, you know, normal or easy, or kind Mm -hmm. of hard, if that's an option. There needs to be more realistic like descriptions of what the hard modes are on those games too. It's just like it's like easy. It's like, oh with a baby. Oh, just here for the story. Oh. And then me <laughs> and then normal is just like it's a game. Kinda hard sometimes, kinda not sometimes, have fun. Hard, it's like <laughs> instant regret. <laughs> Only for the true challengers. I don't know. Anything to entice people to check out all these different sides of the games. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, I've downloaded a few games. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but I got Figment on my Switch at a killer deal. I also got uh, Hyperlight Drifter on the Switch, which I'm yet to start. Uh, that was on a good deal on Switch, so I'm re- excited to get that. I played a bit on my friend's PC when it was initially coming out. Very fun game. Uh, but in the meantime, I've also have Undertale Chapter One and Two to play. I have uh, I'm currently playing Monster Hunter Rise, but I am I need to find more people to play with because solo is fun, but not as fun as when you're hunting in a group. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Horizon Zero Dawn is still in the process. Still amazing. Still beautiful. It, story's uh, right up my alley. Um, but it also takes a long time. It's not as many games that you can just pick up for a half hour setting and then leave alone after. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also why Hades is like the perfect game because you can just go in for like 30
2: minutes and then be done. Do one run uh, and be <laughs> and walk away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it is what it is. Uh, there's a lot more games coming out this year that I'm very excited to talk about and we will see what goes on. Mm-hmm. But before then i think it's time we wrap it up today so we want to thank you for listening to the museum of art and digital entertainment's official podcast if you have any thoughts questions corrections or a general museum ideas please shoot us an email at info
0: we'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services And we'll continue that with future episodes every week.
2: This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Noclip and Eric Fong. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Miles. I'm Anthony.
1: And I'm Red. Thanks, and we will see you next week.
3: Later, gamers!